What an important weekend as we remember those who gave their lives in sacrifice for the freedoms we enjoy as a country. And this morning we have sung about the one who gave his life for our eternal freedom, forgiveness, joy, and salvation. In that, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. As you're turning, I'll allow our kids, children's church age, to be dismissed to children's church this morning. As we come back into John 3 and 4. The title of the sermon is A Pastor in Church Reflect on John 3 to 4. And you may ask, we've been in John 3 and 4 for about 10 weeks now, Pastor. Do we really need another sermon on it? And I might answer by way of analogy. We, we've been on the ground, on the either walking or on the four-wheelers, on the ground of these chapters, and, and we've explored details close up. But I also don't want us to miss the forest because of the trees. So sometimes we need to take that drone in the air and get that big picture view of some of these chapters. And John's gospel shows lengthy conversations that Jesus had with individuals. And two of the best known lengthy conversations Jesus has with individuals are in these chapters with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. In these chapters, we get... One of the best known Bible verses of all times in John 3.16 about how God so loved the world. We get this amazing testimony from John the Baptist that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. So today I want to come back and and we're we're still not through with John 4. Uh, We have another uh, sermon in it anyway. But I want to come back and flesh out some of these massive biblical themes that we see in these two chapters. So if you are physically able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And what I'm going to do is just kind of uh, jump to some of the, the texts in this passage and we'll refer to uh, other ones in the sermon. So John 3, I'm going to begin with verses 5 through 8. Speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then down to verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then over in chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, to the woman at the well, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Thank you for this picture of our glorious Savior, King Jesus. Father, we have had the privilege of studying these texts in detail for two and a half months or so. And Lord, as we come back and we we flesh out some of these big picture themes, Lord, help us to again rejoice in Jesus Christ. God, help us to anchor our lives in Christ crucified and resurrected. Father, I pray for our church to continue to hunger for you, hunger for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So chapters 3 and 4 likely take place early in Jesus' earthly ministry. He doesn't go to the cross until John chapter 19. So the events of these chapters precede the cross chronologically. But the cross is the foundation for everything that's in them. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we may ask, well, how does that happen before the cross? But Jesus is pointing to the new birth that is the effect of his work on the cross. Well, there's a theme of eternal life that pervades these two chapters. And the giving of eternal life hinges on Jesus going to the cross. He tells the woman at the well that he gives living water. Well, that gift is available based on the completed work that will take place at Calvary. So we only have two specific verses that stood out to me in these chapters that foreshadow the cross, but every glorious truth in them rests on Jesus' sacrificial death and his resurrection. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so what I really want us to avoid is the idea that the cross is just the entry point into the Christian life. And then we move on past it. We're in graduation season, right? Some graduating high school seniors will go to college. Others may enter the workforce, but either way, none of them will ever be high school students again. Graduation moves us past that stage of life. But I don't want you to think we graduate from the cross. We don't move on from the cross. Everything in the Christian life builds on it. Think of something building on something. You might think of math. At different ages in my kid's life, I have stressed to them the importance of learning multiplication tables. Just 
memorize them, get them down. They're, they're foundational, they're basics, and math is going to build on that. So, you know, everything that's coming later, you're, you're going to need that. You take algebra or trig or calculus, you, you need that. So you never move on from needing multiplication tables in terms of math. Well, in terms of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is lived in the shadow of the cross. We don't move on from it. We build on the cross forever. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, it wasn't that Paul knew nothing else. It was that everything that he knew was built on Christ and Him crucified. Now, a primary way we teach the faith or reinforce the faith is by singing. The church has always sung. And one way to gauge how solid a church is, is by its singing. And if you'll think back, every song that we sang this morning was about the cross. If a church moves on from songs about the blood, if a church moves on from songs about the cross, beware, because what they've really moved on from is biblical Christianity. We need to sing about the cross. I just, I was thinking as we're singing, oh, the wonderful cross. How strange that must have sounded in first century life to hear wonderful cross together. This horrific form of execution being called wonderful. Well, why is it wonderful? Because the only way we're saved is Jesus went to that cross and Jesus died paying the penalty for our sin and Jesus rose from the dead. And so it is wonderful in the sense that salvation was completed, everything needed for that was done at the cross and now we can live by faith in Jesus' work on the cross and live based on that. Well, how does living based on that help us? We sang a couple of ways this morning. I don't know if you saw it, but in our struggle against pride, if we think about the sinless Savior of the world died and rose in our place as the only way that we're made right with God, there is no place in that for Jeremy exaltation. There's no place for me to beat on my chest and say, look at me. Everything I have is a gift because of Jesus' work on the cross. We sang this morning about the alleviation of fear. If, if the cross solves our greatest fear, the fear of death, by the resurrection of Jesus, then what do we have to fear in this life? So chapters 3 and 4 are pointing us to the cross of Jesus. But chapters 3 and 4 also display both the love of God and the sinfulness of people. You see in point 2 there in your outline, however bad we think sin is, it's far worse. However big we think the love of God is, 
it's far greater. Our sin is far more horrific than we think, and God's love is far bigger than we think. And I think it's good for us to see how do those intersect. We've got John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't yawn, because that verse is so familiar to us. God's purpose in sending Jesus was to go to the cross. And the effect for those who believe is we don't perish. We have eternal life. God sent Jesus. His, his reason, his motivation is because he loved the world. But think about what that world is like that God loves. The world that... God sent Jesus for, really did deserve to perish forever. I was streaming a show the other day while I was eating lunch, and you, know, you have to watch the ads that come up, and I was just kind of mindlessly listening when the tagline of one of those ads really grabbed my attention. I later learned it was from L'Oreal Paris, which is a cosmetics company. The tagline was, because we're worth it. Now, I researched that a little bit. It's changed a few times since 1971. It started out, because I'm worth it. Then it went to, because you're worth it, to, because we're worth it. So it's obviously been a popular slogan for L'Oreal. And, and to be honest, I don't really care about it in terms of a, a line to sell cosmetics. That's not why I bring it out. But I'm thinking about these two truths that we've highlighted. We are deeply loved by God, yet we're horribly sinful so if we tried to take that tagline and bring it into the bible what we would think is the reason we're deeply loved by god is because we're worth it we live in the age of self self-promotion self-exaltation self-pitying self-affirming self-promoting i mean we love selfies right we take selfies. We post selfies. But the constant focus of a self-centered culture is self, which tempts us to think God loves us because we're worth it. And we need the hard but necessary truth that Scripture gives us. God loves us not because we're worth it, but in spite of our unworthiness I love Romans 5a but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners we were not worth it Christ died for us God's love for the world in John 3 16 that we saw so gloriously is not because of our worth it's because of his nature to love objects unworthy of his love. Because if you look just three verses later, we see in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. These are people God created to worship him, to love him, to be in a relationship with him. And instead of running to him, 
we run to evil. It's people who love sin so much that not only will they not come to the light, they hate the light. I want you to see just how horrible our sin is. And the consequences are tragic. There's an old familiar saying, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. My discipleship group and I are on a Bible reading plan, and we, we just, the, the plan just got through the book of Judges. And if you want a, a, a one book, deep dive look at how awful sin is, Read 21 chapters of Judges. There's worship of false gods. There is graphic violence. There's a foolish vow made that led to sacrifice of a daughter. There is a woman abused by a town for a whole night while her husband apparently slept like a baby. She dies and they cut her up and send her 12 tries. I mean, it, it is awful. And the last sentence of that book really summarizes the book everyone did what was right in his own sight that is not a compliment given by the author he gives a tragically honest assessment of how sinful people are but that statement everyone did what was right in his own sight maybe no statement in the bible better describes our modern secular culture. In fact, our secular culture would say, well, it's, it's, it's good that we do what's right in our own sight. But in John 3, we see the consequences of that are tragic. Just, just hear a couple of verses, parts of a couple of verses. John 3:18b. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. And then verse 36b. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the effect of sin. Sin is far worse than we think. It is the highest treason because we're sinning against an infinitely holy, infinitely sinless God. But here's the, the great reality coming alongside that reality. The ugliness of our sin magnifies the glory of this God who loves us in spite of our unworthiness. Well, how does that happen? Well, again, we, we can't make a good argument that God loves us because we're worth it. We just don't have it, especially after the last seven minutes or so of what I've said. He loves because it's his nature to love. And God loved by sending his son for the purpose of dying on the cross for this lost world. Notice that we're back to the cross. I say everything builds on that in the Christian life. Well, the cross displays to us very clearly the horrific nature of sin and very clearly the glorious love of God. That is where we see both of those come together. Jesus came to die for a world in rebellion against him taking on our sin so that we could be redeemed and made right with this God. God's love for a fallen people is so glorious precisely because we're not worthy of it. Tim Keller was 
longtime pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. One of, and he recently died, last couple of weeks or so, uh, from cancer. But one of my favorite quotes of his is this, and it's in your outline. He said, the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. We need both of those truths. It makes it so gloriously overwhelming that this statement is true. Every person, regardless of their badness, can be saved by Jesus. Every person who believes in Jesus, in spite of their mountain of sins, and we all have a mountain of sins, but every person who believes in Jesus is forgiven of those sins. I mean, it's just such good news. But in being forgiven, they also become a child of God with such security that no one or no thing can ever snatch them out of the Father's hand. That is how secure we are in Christ. And y'all, we should just be amazed that Jesus went to Sychar. John chapter 4. This trip did nothing to build his popularity. In fact, it would have made his approval ratings drop among the Jewish people. This is a nothing village full of people looked down on as second-class citizens by Jews. Yet Jesus went to Samaria. Why would he do that? Because he loved Samaritans, and he wanted them to receive living water. He loved a woman written off as too far gone to ever matter even in her own village. Folks, we might think people are too far gone. Too far gone to really be redeemed by Jesus. I'm telling you, if, if, if we dropped in in Acts chapter 7 and looked at Saul and saw him overseeing the martyrdom of Stephen, we might think he's too far gone. If we landed in Corinth in first century days, what some commentators call the Las Vegas of the ancient world, we might think, well, that, that city's too sinful for anybody to come to faith in Jesus. I mean, just here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then just here, verse 11. Paul's writing to this city of Corinth where all of that is there, and he says to them, and such were some of you, some of you in the church that I'm writing to, and such were some of you, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Former, blatant, horrific sinners are saved, not because they're worthy, but because of Jesus' sacrifice. Well, that kind of amazing grace didn't stop on the page of the New Testament. You might be on a pew with somebody today who someone may have written off as too far gone years ago to come to faith in Jesus. If you said before Jesus 
visited Sychar. Identify one person in this town who won't be in the kingdom of God. Most people in that city probably would have voted for the woman at the well. God loves to make people trophies of his amazing grace. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, toward the end of his life, said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Folks, I hope for my kids and your kids that they'll have really boring testimonies in the sense of they won't live a life of long-term, blatant, obvious sin. But I hope they also know that it takes the same amount of grace to save anyone. In these chapters, we should not think there is just one sinner. It takes as much grace to save the Pharisee as it does the woman at the well. Do we know the woman at the well is a sinner? Sure, every, everybody in the town knew that, right? Her, her sin is in the town's gossip column. It's not hard for us to detect that blatant, obvious sin. But there's another dangerous sin. That's the sin of empty religiosity. We need to see that Nicodemus needed Jesus just as much as this woman at the well. His sinfulness is a little harder to see. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's the teacher of Israel. He's a model of morality. This guy likely tithed on his herb garden, folks. That's how religious he is. But he's a sinner. Think about Paul. He was a Pharisee similar to Nicodemus. And Paul's sin was coveting. I can't look at you. You can't look at me and tell when somebody's coveting. It's not obvious. It's not on the surface. Yet that sin separated him from God and made him desperate for the salvation Jesus came to bring. And I think in our Bible Belt or post-Bible Belt culture, we need to be aware of that type of idea. We need to affirm that a person who is a good citizen that displays a moral code we agree with, maybe even votes like us, but who has not personally turned to Jesus Christ in saving faith is lost and needs Christ. Listen, we, we can check boxes. I, I'm, a, I'm a list checker. Uh, sometimes if I have a list and I do something not on the list, I'll put it on the list so I can check it. I'm a good list checker. I mean, we can go to Sunday school, check. Come to church sometimes, check. Was my grandma strong in the faith? And we can try to check, in a, a religious culture, might try to check those boxes and make a thing. Well, I'm fine with God based on that. I'm guessing Nicodemus was a great box checker. Religiosity. But box checkers must be born again too. So I'm grateful that God saves modern day women at the well. But I'm also grateful that God saves Pharisees. 
Neither is outside of his saving. Both of us need it. Now, again, see the beauty of chapter 4, verse 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God desires worshipers in spirit and truth. And great news is God is seeking them. Now, I want you to think of theme verse of Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a gift that our God is a seeking God. And what a gift that in his seeking, he uses us to share good news of the gospel with people. In these two chapters, John the Baptist, he had been a witness about Jesus. This Samaritan woman became a witness and led a town to Jesus. We see this in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This seeking God allows us to join in his mission to save people through us telling people the good news of the gospel. I read a story in in the book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. In this story, a Christian named Landon moved to a new home, really to be a missionary to this neighborhood. His friends even called him the neighborhood's unofficial pastor. Well, a pivotal event took place in that neighborhood when Landon caught a teenage boy breaking into a vacant house. He confronted this young man, and instead of calling the police, he walked him home and talked to the boy's mother. He found out that she was a struggling single mom and that some of the older kids in the neighborhood were influencing him negatively. And so Landon offered to step in and be a good influence on this kid. This kid's name was Landon, or sorry, TJ. Landon and TJ formed a friendship. That friendship led to a regular kickball game on Sunday afternoon with TJ and some of his friends. But it didn't just stop there with Landon, the guy that had moved into the neighborhood. His group of guys in a Bible study also got involved, and they had this big kickball game on Sunday afternoon. But it didn't stop there either. Fast forward about a year. These men had become, in some ways, um, good role models to many boys who do not have fathers around. Well, they started taking these kids to the student ministry at their church. This led them going to youth camp, where Landon was able to lead TJ and three of his friends to saving faith in Jesus Christ. God is a seeking God and uses us in order to share good news. This past week, we had our closing ceremony of Awana. I don't know if you thought about why we do Awana. It's not a money maker in our church. We certainly don't do it to fund things in the church. In fact, I'd say we very likely lose money on Awana. And we'll do it year after year as long as the Lord allows because of the gospel seeds that it sows, because of the opportunity to share good news if we're serious about reaching lostness we will continue ministries like that that we get to share good news with our community about the gospel of Jesus Christ
Well, in this account also, in these chapters, one of the big things is the focus of the kingdom of God is on the king. And the reality is, I'm not the king. You're not the king. There is one king. So Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's in John 3, 3. Now, there's a lot that Nicodemus missed in this conversation with Jesus. And he certainly missed that right in front of him, the person speaking to him is the king of the kingdom. Now, Nicodemus, like many of us, had his own kingdom, right? Nicodemus was comfortable. He was looked up to. He had influence. What Nicodemus needed to do was turn and see who the true king was and put his focus there. Now, I know in in our kingdoms, we want everybody to act like we're the king, don't we? My kingdom, everybody should drive like me. Everybody should like the same hobbies that I like. Everybody should like the same foods that I like. But my kingdom needs to die to be part of the greater kingdom. I'm just, John the Baptist, he doesn't think like it's about his kingdom. In this, in John 3, we see that his disciples get really concerned about John's popularity, about John's kingdom. They're worried because people are going to Jesus, which means they're not coming to John as much. And this also has effect on their kingdoms, right? They don't want their popularity to wane either. So here is John, who has been in many ways the religious star of the day, but his star is fading and Jesus's is rising. Surely John the Baptist is going to be concerned about that. Instead, John is thrilled. He said, I'm just the friend of the groom. His whole life is meant to rejoice in the fact that people are going to Jesus. That the groom is here and the bride is going to him. And he says this amazing statement in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I just want you to know that the decrease of self in your life and the increase of Jesus is the path to true joy and freedom. If we live for our increase, the effect of that is misery. The increase of Jesus in our lives is the best thing for any of us. And we're constantly being sold on the idea that the route to happiness is more attention, more focus on self, more likes on your social media posts, more comments about you. I'm telling you, don't buy into it. It's not life. The more focus there is in your life on Jesus, the happier you are going to be. And I want you to get upset or think about, well, it's, just not, it's not just about my happiness. Well, I don't think we can get around the search for happiness. The truth is, it is found in Christ. Ultimate joy in Him. I love Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy in God's presence. At your right hand, there are pleasures, not for five minutes, forevermore. That's what I want for us.
what I want for the world, for maybe the ones, maybe the family and friends and coworkers you're praying for, is that they'll see Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the only one. Nicodemus saw him as a teacher. One went to well as a prophet. It's not far enough. Finally, this Samaritan village rightly declares, verse 42, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Folks, our world is longing for the Savior. And you can see, if you just if pay attention culturally, if you see, if you're watching TV shows, if you're watching movies, sometimes you're going to see a, cultural, a culture's longing for the Savior. Our family, we just like superhero movies. We just do. I saw an article entitled, interesting title, Every Jesus Figure in Zack Snyder Movies. It was on screen round. I, I don't think it was written by a believer. But he particularly dove into the, stup- the Superman story. And he looked at uh, some, some of it from Batman or Superman and then Justice League. Some of the things he documented was how Superman's birth on Krypton is considered miraculous since natural pregnancies didn't really happen there anymore. And then in Batman versus Superman, Superman dies at the age of 33. He dies a sacrificial death, saving the world from a villain, and catch the villain's name, Doomsday. Finally, in Justice League, Superman is resurrected. Now let me be real clear. Superman is not Jesus. Superman can't hold a candle to Jesus. But I also want you to see our culture's longing, even in symbolism, in terms of a superhero movie, this longing for the Savior. And here in John 4:42, the Samaritans had found what they had longed for and maybe didn't even know it. This is indeed the Savior of the world. He is the one everyone needs Nicodemus may have thought he needed tips on being a better teacher John's disciples thought they needed to gain more publicity for John the one the well thought she needed physical water the disciples thought they needed bread what everyone them most needed was the good news of the savior of the world and folks that hasn't changed and you leave today you're going to enter into a mission field where our world needs the good news of its savior we live in a, in a day and age where people are de-churching or deconstructing their faith and you know we could wring our hands and worry about that or we could just keep telling the good news that the savior of the world has come and he still saves And maybe some of those hundred, the one who's left, they will truly come to the Savior of the world. But let's get back to the gospel. Let's keep our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's build our faith on that. 
And let's tell this good news to people who need to hear about the Savior of the world. We're going to have our time of invitation here in just a moment as we do. If you need to come forward and just pray at the altar that is open. If uh, the Lord's dealing with you about something, I'll be here at the front. We also take this invitation ways to go with it. Because in every age, in every culture, every person needs the good news of the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for thank you for this good news that is so prevalent through these two chapters. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ that we don't have to be condemned. The wrath of God doesn't have to remain on us. We thank you that there is such good news that we can have eternal life. All because of Jesus going to the cross and paying our sin debt and rising again. And I pray, Lord, for people that put their faith in Jesus. Yes, those listening by radio, those on Facebook, in the room. But also as your church goes out equipped with this gospel message that we would tell. And that there be family members or friends or co-workers or associates in whatever capacity in their sphere of influence. That they would hear good news. They would believe and their eternal destiny change. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you